I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today very, very, very quickly became a very dear friend. I was a guest on his podcast, appropriately called Consciousness is All There Is. And we spoke about artificial intelligence. And when we did, we started to look at AI from a spiritual point of view. We looked at it from a consciousness point of view. It was an amazing conversation. So I said, you know what? That's it. You're coming to be a guest on Slow Mo. Dr. Tony Nader is an MD, a PhD, trained at Harvard University. He's a PhD in neuroscience from MIT. And he's a globally recognized expert in the science of consciousness and human development. He is a highly accomplished medical researcher and was appointed assistant director of clinical research at MIT and a clinical research fellow at the, hold on, I never managed to say this properly, Massachusetts, why would a place be called something so complicated? At the Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. He has given lectures at Harvard Business School on the neuroscience of transcendence and at Stanford University, where he gave a series of talks on hacking consciousness. This is because on top of all of his accomplishments as a medical doctor, a neuroscientist, and a public speaker on topics like consciousness, he is also the successor to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and the head of Transcendental Meditation Organization globally. In his new book, One Unbound Ocean of Consciousness, Tony comprehensively examines what scientists call the hard problem of consciousness. We're going to be talking about this a little bit today. He unpacks this abstract question of what is consciousness for both the general public and also for the experts in the field by investigating consciousness, not only from a spiritual point of view, but also from a human psychology point of view, a quantum physics point of view and the more ancient uh, Vedic sciences, if you want. With his research and books and unique position, Dr. Tony Nader is definitely bringing a ton of scientific rigor and ancient wisdom to the study of consciousness to help humanity reach its fullest potential. So we're going to be talking about all of this today, and please join me to welcome Tony Nader. Oh, by the way, in Arabia, we say Nader. Of course, in the rest of the world, it's Nader. Tony, it's amazing to have you again. This is such a treat and such a pleasure. It's my great joy. I really discovered a great personality when I was with you. I knew about you, of course, but being with you in person is a very special treat. We had a very, very, very interesting conversation last time. So I was saying in the intro that you and I met when you hosted me on your podcast. And I was talking about artificial intelligence but then your podcast is entirely about spirituality and, you know, how to find Zen and all of that. And so that conversation went to amazing places. If you guys have not heard it, you should probably check it out. 
where we basically spoke about the spirituality of AI and the spirituality of the machine and the idea of how we can actually understand what spirituality is. And I thought, my God, that's an amazing conversation that we should probably bring here as well. Not maybe on AI, but really more about what Dr. Nader is doing and how we can uh, bring that to your attention. So can I start with the simplest thing? I, I did an intro, but the intro really is words written about what you are and your achievements and so on. But I'd rather have us start by your story. I mean, what you're doing really is aiming and attempting to change the world. People are not normally born that way. So what got you here? Circumstances, of course, get us where we are in some way. And my circumstances growing in the Middle East, in Lebanon, and growing with a certain education, which presented the world for me as perfect place, place of balance, a place of fairness, and there is supreme justice, and uh, all that is good is there under control, that there is a kind of an overarching power of orderliness. And then with that in the background, I got to face a civil war for many, many years. Yeah where I saw different faces, different beliefs, different ideas clash and lead to real serious problems. In my family, we were all doctors in a sense by tradition. So I had no thinking that I could be anything else. And it interested me as a vocation, but also as an interest in discovering how we can understand human beings and their behavior, of course, how we can help them through medicine and medication to relieve suffering, but also to be a better people and make better choices. And this, together with the tremendous, if you like, gap between what I expected and what I was seeing on daily life with patients, people being traumatized, children suffering from the war and all of this, and even including my personal friends and some events in my own father, my own family being hurt and all of that, it just made me ask big questions about us humans. What are we doing? Where are we going? Why are we doing all of this? Mm. And of course, that was an extreme, but we see it in many places and many dimensions also in the world today. Clash of belief, clash of uh, different kinds of interests, it's fine, but why do they not find the solution that makes us better people? So I studied medicine, I did uh, even go into research, feeling that if I understood the brain more, because it seemed to be the seat of our conscious thinking and our decision making, maybe I can understand this machine that is <laughs> ours. I know you study much more complex machines in some way or much simpler. Not but at all. Not at all. No, <laughs> no machine is more complex than the human machine. <laughs> to some extent, at least in the future, something will be different and superior yeah. to what we have. But Still, I did study the brain, I did study neuroscience, I went to the different universities, and I was still feeling there is something not completely fulfilling the ability to achieve the goal. So in the meantime, I had learned technique, mental technique, transcendental meditation, that actually allowed me to see that from a simple mind level, from the mind side, we can influence the physiology and also the behavior. 
So I got very interested in that. I did research on it. And then I was invited by the founder, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, to be with him in India at that time. And I, when I graduated from MIT and finished my fellowship at Harvard, I went there and uh, he gradually put me as his apprentice and worked with him very closely on all these mental techniques, the ancient techniques of yoga and meditation, and particularly transcendental meditation, which led me to see the value of it and its profound influence for the individual and society. And from there, before he left, he, he made me the leader of his programs worldwide. And that's where the inspiration came to actually make this knowledge available, to make life better for individual and society in a scientific way, in a scientific way, which means in a repeatable, reliable way that is systematic also, which means there is a method. It's not just philosophically inclined. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of thinking. It's not a belief. It's technology. But technology of the mind, like you improve your machines and you make them more capable of processing information and in the right direction, we have stresses and strains that prevent our machine, <laughs> our nervous system, etc., from actually functioning in the best possible way due to whatever previous history and whatever prejudice we have and whatever worldview we have that makes us see things from a perspective that makes us feel either in danger or insecure and then we fight with each other. So we have programs that can make a difference and this is in answering your question of changing the world. It's funny because those who have tried TM swear by it. So there are so many teachers. One of my favorite authors ever is Michael Singer, who wrote uh, The Untethered Soul and The Surrender Experiment. And he definitely is an avid transcendental meditation advocate. And he swears by it. Like he really thinks this is it. And, and in a very interesting way for the, maybe for the sake of our listeners who don't know what TM is, maybe we can start by this, just explain what TM is and maybe go a little deeper into what you said, the technology of the machine and why it works so well, why it works so repeatedly and predictably. If you can share that, I think it will get a lot of people's attention. Yes. First, as a technique, it's very simple. You sit quietly yeah. in a chair. Yeah, very it's so easy. simple. Yeah. You don't have to have a change in your lifestyle. You don't have to believe in anything. You don't have to concentrate. You don't have to contemplate even. And so when one thinks of meditation, usually one thinks different kinds of concentration or taking the attention to your breathing level or uh, witnessing the thoughts that come to you and try to be distant from them. You know, all the mindfulness that are there. And these are what we can call open monitoring, which means you monitor things with an openness that allows you to be free from prejudice and judgment. But you actually guide the mind, you know, like feel your breathing, think about that, which we can put in the category of contemplation, contemplation techniques. Other techniques are concentration techniques, which means uh, the mind is considered like a monkey jumping around all the time and uh, we need to get it settled. So let's teach it how to focus by practicing focus. So if you practice focus, you can then 
train the mind to focus on objects. Transcendental meditation is neither. It's neither contemplation nor concentration. It doesn't require any manipulation of the mind. And these actually techniques, they have their signature in the machine, <laughs> calling the machine, as I speak with you as a great expert <laughs> in this field. So the machine, which is our main, our brain, our nervous system, the way it works. Mm -hmm. And they have a different signature in the sense that if you analyze the waves in the brain, you see different wave frequencies and different correlation between different parts of the brain the front and the back, right and left. And you see different wavelengths and how they are actually either coherent or incoherent. So when you try to concentrate, you get a certain kind of waves. When you try to contemplate, which is open monitoring, you get another kind of brain waves. And when you practice transcendental meditation, you get yet another kind of waves, which is much more coherent between right and left, front and back. And which is of a certain specific frequency. So therefore, when we say it's different, it's not just different in the practice, but in actually its effects and what it does fundamentally on different parts of the brain. So going back to what do you actually do? So you sit comfortably, you close the eyes, and it has the basic understanding that within us there is a system which is, as we said, very complex, very rich in possibilities, which is our true self. But it has within it all kinds of stresses and strains, as if, you know, the machine has been impacted by malfunctioning, disconnections yeah. between different parts, and therefore it's not giving its full potential. And the fact of returning back to the self in a natural way, allows all these dysfunctions to be removed. This is the premise of the technique, that there is within us, our true self, something that is very grand, very attractive, very beautiful. It has all the source of our creativity and intelligence and our ability to think in a way that is proper and evolutionary. We usually say the mind is like an ocean, active on its surface and quieter and quieter in its depths. From the depths of the ocean is the source of thought and the source of thinking and planning and imagination and creativity. However, we spend our time on the surface, like on the waves on the surface of the ocean of the mind. And what is the nature of the mind? So transcendental meditation is based on the nature of our mind, which is at a key point in the practice. What is the nature of the mind? And we say, if we think about it, we're always searching for more, more happiness, more knowledge, more understanding, more love, more beauty, more of everything that is good and less, of course, of any stress and strain. So more freedom, etc. So the mind is constantly searching for more. If you're reading a book and it's boring and you hear a nice music next door, your mind shifts to the music naturally. And even your eyes are just going through the book, but you find yourself suddenly listening to the music. That indicates the shift of the mind's attention from one object of interest to another 
happens naturally. You don't make an effort to move the mind to something more pleasing. It goes by itself. It attracts it. So this nature of the mind to go towards more pleasing, more fulfilling experience is what we use in transcendental meditation. And usually the mind, of course, searches for more beauty, more happiness, etc., through the senses, which means projects itself to the outside. In transcendental meditation, we use a simple technique that allows the mind to look within, to go within. And therefore, it takes the inward direction. And when we took the analogy of the ocean, it is really diving within towards the source of intelligence, the source of creativity, which is within us. And that original state, which is our own true deep self. And then the mind dives guided by its own nature in a very innocent, very simple way. And therefore, as the mind dives, in the same way as the ocean is more settled within, the mind settles down. It becomes more and more quiet. That's what the meditators who practice transcendental meditation experience. It is without their doing, the mind settles down. Without trying anything, it settles down. When the mind settles down, the body also settles down because they are intimately related. And we've seen this in changes in metabolism and skin resistance, electromagnetic waves and brain waves and changes in cortisol, changes, you know, there are more than 600 scientific research studies. Uh, more than 400 are published in peer-reviewed journals that show the profound effects in healing the body, removing stress and strain and re-establishing balance. So why people like transcendental meditation? I think there are many reasons. One is the experience itself is really enjoyable. So when you sit for 20 minutes, you don't feel you are sitting to do something and you've had a long day and now one more thing to do. It's just actually something you look forward to having. It's like when you're feeling sleepy and you look forward to go to sleep, of course, to have a moment. It's not something that is an obligation, yet one more thing to do. But TM is not like sleep, of course, because it's a new state of consciousness in which you are rested, but at the same time awake, very awake. So there is very deep rest, yet very high alertness. That is a very new state of consciousness that is different from sleep, waking, or dreaming. So the experience itself is very enjoyable. But what's also more interesting is the results. When you come out of it, you come out as if you started a new day for 20 minutes and you come out, you're fresh, you're clear. You come out with great ideas, great thoughts. You solve problems because you have wider consciousness, wider awareness, because you have expanded yourself to your deep self. You feel less stressed and there are all the benefits on the level of health and behavior and even social effects. So based on all of these, people think it's really great. You still haven't told us how it works. So we sit down quietly and instead of focusing on your breathing like traditional meditation, you're focusing on a mantra. You don't focus actually. The technique itself doesn't require focus. There is a way of taking the mantra, the sound, and we use the sound which has no meaning. Mm. Because as the mind settles down, 
it could not be awake. It can slip into sleeping or into something, which is fine. There is a way to handle that. But what the mantra does, it helps the mind remain awake in a non-directed way because it has no meaning. Mm. And yet it's a special sound that is not disturbing the individual's nervous system. So if you take a sound that has a meaning, let's say flower or something like that, then your mind, your consciousness is on the object, which has a structure, which has a memory, which has associations with it. And therefore, you remain on the surface of the ocean. Mm. So we take a word that has these two qualities, that it has no meaning, but it's also adequate for the individual. And it's also able to dive with you towards deeper states without being jarring, without being a jarring noise that prevents you from diving to the depths of the ocean. So the mantra is therefore a vehicle that is used to keep the mind awake in a non-directed way as it dives by its nature towards these deep levels. And there is, of course, a way to use the mantra, which is taught systematically. We teach this on person-by-person basis. And that is very important. The steps of teaching have to be done personally. So that's why we can't learn it from a book. And I can't just teach everybody like that on this. Yeah. On the and every individual will have a different mantra. So there is a, a mantra for you specifically that is yours. And I, I understand that you don't even tell it to others. You're not supposed to share it with others. Yes, there is a mantra which is, of course, there are not 7 billion mantras. So there are categories of mantras. Mm. And you keep it for yourself mainly because it's an inward direction rather than outward. So we don't want the habit to say it out or we don't want to say it out. It's something very intimate, which you take in a special way, special procedure that is taught. And you keep it as an inward directed procedure. It's interesting because diving deep, like you rightly said, there is contemplation and focus meditations, right? So in an interesting way, when when you're trying to calm the mind, this is what we normally refer to as the, if you want, mainstream meditation. You're just trying to bring it back to calm every time it starts to stray away. Here, what you're doing is you're almost letting yourself dive. Right. You're not right. putting in the effort. You're just letting yourself dive deeper where it's quieter and quieter and quieter which I think is in a very different way. How does it affect our brains differently? Exactly, you know, you described it exactly because when we say you focus on the mantra, that's not correct. Actually, we don't focus on the mantra at all. We do repeat the mantra in a special way and we are told how to do it and we tell the student what to do, when to do, if the mantra does this or that, what you take care of it. This has to be taught in a systematic way. It's actually the nature of the mind to dive in. And the mantra is a vehicle that we don't try to focus on or concentrate on or manipulate even the mind's flow towards its own inner depths, guided by its own nature. That's a big statement. So the mind's nature is to dive is almost the opposite of everyone listening to us now. Most of the people <laughs> listening to us saying, my mind is distracting me all the time. It's always talking. Right. It's always bringing up all of those different topics. The idea of the mind wanting to go into the deeper places is actually not the experience of many people. That's beautiful because exactly, actually, 
it sounds contradictory in saying that we don't try to calm our mind during transcendental meditation at all. There is no trying. Trying is prohibited in the process. And that's really repeated many times in the process. Now, when I said the mind wants to dive and to go to this settled place, it's not because it wants to dive as end towards its goal. It's in the sense that we discussed earlier that the nature of the mind is to go towards more and more and more. So that's why we took the example mm. of the mind shifting its attention from one book, let's say, to a music or from one point of interest to another in a natural way without forcing it to do that. So the nature of the mind is to go towards more but it usually tries to go towards more to the outside, towards the outside. Mm. Now, that is why actually when people say, my mind is shifting and jumping, it's their mind is looking for more. What is more pleasant? What am I missing? What is uh, annoying me that I should get rid of so I get more freedom, so I get more happiness, so I get more balance, so I get more money, so I get more power, so whatever your more knowledge, more understanding, more whatever. So the mind is jumping, jumping, looking, looking, looking. So that's why the mind jumps. But it's looking for more in the outside, towards outside things. During transcendental meditation, we give it the inward direction. And the premise is that inward is more than the most. That ultimately, you know, when people say, know thyself, expand your awareness, know your consciousness, that ultimately means go back to your own true self, go back home, go back to the settled place, which is the source of your creativity, the source of your intelligence, the source of your ability to act, the most peaceful place, the most serene place, and the most place of happiness. That is all within us. So. When we say we take the inward direction, then the mind understands naturally. We don't have to explain to the mind. The mind naturally starts diving, guided by its desire, by its nature, to go towards more and more. And since the inside is more than the most, this is how it settles down. So it is not by telling it settle down that it should settle down. If you see a bee buzzing around a flower, it's buzzing, 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 and suddenly it's quiet. Why? Because it found the nectar. Mm -hmm. So if a dog is barking around so beautiful. the door and you start to stop it and yell at it and like this, it's going to be barking and then barking again. You just give it a little bone or something and it calms down. So when the mind finds something that is pleasing, it naturally settles on it. Mm. And since inside of us is the ultimate pleasing, the ultimate fulfilling, the ultimate platform for our strengths, our happiness, our peace, naturally when we direct the mind through the process of transcendental meditation towards the inside, then we can say, well, in a shortcut, it dives down. It wants to dive down. It is not doing it just because it wants to dive down. It's doing it because it wants more and more and more and more than the most is within us. And so it's kind of the bee finding the honey 
and settling down on it. And if the honey is right down, mm -hmm. then it goes down. <laughs> I prefer the analogy of the dog. So if uh, let's call the mind the dog and we're trying to give it the bone, right? Yes. And the best of all bones is deep down there inside us. So, you know, next time your mind is scattered all over the place, give the dog a bone. I mean, seriously. Okay? <laughs> Tony, when, when we spoke on your podcast, we spoke about consciousness, which is, I think, from knowing you for a while now, is your real work. The idea of that, that consciousness is the essence of all life, that, that life doesn't exist without consciousness, really. That, let's start that conversation. What is consciousness to you? That's beautiful. You know, yeah, I kind of, when I, you started the story with what I did and where I went, I ultimately discovered what I feel and I believe truly is the ultimate reality that can make a difference. And that's why I wrote the book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, a simple answer to the big questions in life. And that is to explain the primacy of consciousness. See, my life I have lived through the physical perception as a doctor, as a scientist, as a researcher in brain and cognitive science and physiology and all of that was all in the means of how to improve the material so we can also change the mental and consciousness and decision-making and make life better for ourselves and make better decisions as individuals and as a society. I ended up discovering that I had the wrong starting point, that actually it is not matter and the brain that creates consciousness, but consciousness is primary, which means it is actually a field, consciousness is a field, that appears as matter and the physical universe. Now, this might sound a big jump, but today, as scientists get more and more interested in consciousness, they are facing uh, big questions about the relationship between the physical and the non-physical, which means between consciousness and matter, consciousness and energy, as physical energy is concerned. and there has been a big problem in the circles of scientists, which is called the heart problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. The heart problem of consciousness has been a term that has been coined by David Chalmers, a prominent philosopher, who said there is an easy problem of consciousness and there is a heart problem of consciousness. The easy problem of consciousness is extremely difficult also but compared to the heart problem <laughs> it is can be thought as easy the easy problem of consciousness is you can imagine how one day we can understand everything about what it takes to see an object the light comes from the object goes through the eye the lens and the retina it excites the nerve cells the nerve cells create electrical impulse it, it carries through the synapse, there is neurotransmitter, it goes there, it goes finally in the occipital lobe, then the association areas, and then we compare it with what we know before, what we know now, the memory and all of that, and the flower is projected on us as the machine, for example, recognizing, yes, this is a flower because I took up the wavelengths. Now, if the machine can detect the wavelengths, it can even tell you the color, it can tell you the shape, it can tell you based on memory what it's used for and what its context and can even tell you the history of it and all of that. Now, this is 
the easy problem. Ultimately, we feel we will be able to discover all the mechanics of what happens when we hear, when we see, even when we feel, etc. But what is the hard problem is how do we actually subjectively experience it as a personal, subjective, conscious experience that I am that person and I experience redness and redness means that thing for me and subjectively give meaning. What is it like to be myself? What is it like to experience an object in a self-reflective way that is not just a set of processes that lead to a recognition of an object's distinct qualities or distinct aspects. So it's the subjective experience of self, the subjective experience of feelings. What is it like to feel love and to be loved? What is it like? This really something that stands on its own in the realm of the material reality. And that consciousness, to discover what it is and understand what it is, is actually the heart problem. And so far, scientists have tried, maybe it's quantum mechanical, maybe it's uh, this, quantum field theory, and all of that. But there is not even a hint or a clue of what truly is that consciousness. And if it is that, what it is, how does it interact? What is the mechanism by which it talks and interacts with this physical universe? So this is the big question. And that assumption before we move from there, so consciousness is not just limited to the physical universe in that case. Consciousness of physical objects is going through our sensory machine, but consciousness of the non-physical concepts, if you want. Exactly. Exactly. That means that consciousness itself is non-physical. Exactly. Exactly. So this is the problem. How do we decide? Do we say that there is a physical world that is uh, material and energy, and there is on the other side a spiritual world or a consciousness reality which is different? Or how do they emerge? How do they talk to each other? You know, Descartes started the discussion in the modern times by saying, you know, the Cartesian method, that there is duality. So stop thinking, he said, don't complain. There is matter is one thing. Consciousness is one other thing. How they talk to each other, we don't know. We'll figure it out. So this is what led to what we call dualism, the sense of two entities and whatever it is, how they come, what they come, we don't ask ourselves the question. This is not satisfactory to modern science because you have to see where things are from where they come and even modern philosophers and thinkers as well as very ancient thinkers who actually espoused the idea of monism, which means it's only one reality, either material or mental. So for the material side, they decided that, okay, we start with energy. We don't know where it comes from. We will solve this problem later. And this material complexifies and complexifies and gets more orderly. And then suddenly consciousness emerges. That's why they call it the emergent quality. It emerges from complexity and orderliness. And 
that is one idea but how can it emerge is still absolutely no idea and actually from where that energy comes there is absolutely no idea there is the other side which says that actually consciousness is primary and then they don't know how to explain how from consciousness everything emerges is everything just an illusion are we living in a holographic universe are we simulation you have these theories that float around now in the resolution to this question comes to us actually from unexpected places there is of course the experience on a subjective level of people who practice transcending which means going beyond and experience the self and all of that and the effects of consciousness on society on the being etc many scientific research that's a whole category but there is also a category of knowledge that actually these structures the physical itself because what we call now material objects that are separate one from the other are actually as you go deeper into them they are made out of molecules uh, the molecules are made out of atoms atoms are made out of elementary particles we go to energy fields and then more and more these energy fields are being unified it's no more magnetism and electricity it's electromagnetism it's no more electromagnetic and then weak force now we have the electro weak the electromagnetic weak force and nobel prizes have been given for these discoveries that actually unify nature at a much more abstract level than gross objects in quantum field theories and today also many unified field theories that say that everything comes from this mostly abstract field of unification the unified field theory that says that the whole universe comes from this field of being and that when we put our attention on this field or these possibilities the objects appear to collapse and appear to us as separate objects Pause here, Tony. I think we need to explain a lot of this to our listeners. This is the physics side of it. Scientists always speak that way. Think of it this way. Basically, everything that you see that has so many varieties, mangoes and peaches and humans and animals and trees and rocks and all of that, if you really dig deep, 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 deep into the, the stuff that they're made of, you would recognize something that appears to be one unified Lego brick. It's not even colored. It's just the same exact Lego brick and you put it together in certain configurations and it ends up being an atom of iron and then creates molecules or particles and so on and so forth. You put it together in a different way. It becomes carbon and becomes part of your proteins and makes a human and so on. But at the very, very fundamental level, unified field theory will tell you that everything is just one and the same. So that was one one thing that Tony said that I think you may want to rewind and listen to again because it's very, very, very fundamental to understand this. The other thing is that you put your observation on it and it comes together. So there seems to be a lot of knowledge in science that's basically telling us that those Lego bricks, let's call them, are just thrown this there on the floor with the possibility of making anything. So, you know, they can be used to make anything, but they only make the stuff that you observe. When you become conscious of something, it becomes, if you want. It doesn't exist until you do. It is literally built out of that unified field and it comes to existence. So, Tony, go on. I'm sorry to have stopped you, but I think some of our listeners may have needed a simpler explanation. Absolutely delightful. It's a wonderful explanation. Thank you. So 
actually things are there with certain probabilities of exactly. actually appearing and existing so what the physicists call it is the wave function mm -hmm. the wave function means that an electron for example or a proton has a certain probability of appearing here appearing in next room appearing in next country or even appearing in mars or in another galaxy the same electron has a probability of being practically anywhere in the world, of course, in the universe, but probabilistically, which means it might have a bigger chance to be here. It's not sure it will be here, but it's more likely to be here based on conditions because besides the fact that it is one unified field, there are fluctuations within it, and these fluctuations influence each other. They are entangled, which means they are interconnected. And as they are interconnected, they create probabilities of things. Now, this wave remains a wave until an observer puts an observation on it. Now, the observer can be a human being or can be something else that interacts with it. But what happens is for sure we know, and that's the, they call it the Copenhagen interpretation because people came, this big scientists came to Copenhagen together and they couldn't solve this problem of how consciousness or the attention of the observer influences the localization yeah. of the object. Mm. So they called it the Copenhagen interpretation, which means the observer, what they said, collapses the wave function, which means mm -hmm. when you observe it, all this spread out possibilities and probabilities now focus on one point and you say, I see the electron. I see it is here. I located in time and space. So. It's only one small step more to say that actually that unified field is a field of consciousness itself and that we are all consciousness and consciousness interacts with itself and experiences itself in myriad ways, infinite numbers of ways that we call our actual experience of objective reality. So objective reality does exist for us, I'm not saying it's an illusion, but what is the substance, if you like, although it's not a substance, but just for, for the sake of expressing it, what is the stuff it is made of? You have a gold bracelet, a gold statue, a gold ring, a gold chain. They are all gold, but they structure themselves so that it becomes a ring, a bracelet, etc. But the stuff is gold. So the stuff, the ultimate stuff, out of which everything is made, according to the model I present in this book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, the stuff is consciousness. The stuff is consciousness. And it's not enough to say it, because if you say it, then it can say, oh, maybe it's a dogma, maybe it's a belief about something more abstract and we have to believe in it actually i present a logic and a stepwise understanding of how consciousness can appear as the myriad things how the one thing can appear as multiple things and how these multiple things interact what are the rules of their interactions how they evolve is there a design is it by randomness trial and error and all of this has great implications in our life and decision-making. 
and understanding the meaning of life and understanding law, justice, rehabilitation, punishment and uh, reward and determinism versus freedom. And so that is what makes it a compelling logic. It's because not only it's as if an axiom paradigm out of nowhere, it comes on the basis of observation because after all, we humans, we are an experiencing entity. That's what we are. Everything else is appearance of something. But as far as we understand ourselves, we are an experiencing entity. That's what we are. If the body stops working and the experiencing part of us completely vanishes, then we are not there anymore. It's not, we don't exist anymore. We are gone. That's what we call death in a sense. But we are ultimately an experiencing entity. And this model, this paradigm extends this experiencing reality to everything in manifestation. So that when an electron experiences a positron and they get attracted to each other, this is a small, tiny piece of consciousness. When it becomes more complex and it becomes a tree and the tree feels the sun and responds to it, feels the humidity and sends its roots to pick up the humid thing and adjusts itself with other trees, which we know the trees do in a very complex way, we're calling this an aspect of consciousness. Now, why people usually react to this almost instinctively in a negative way? Because they imagine that when we're saying the tree is conscious, they imagine that we are saying it's conscious like us as humans. It's not. It's not. What we're saying is consciousness has a range, huge range, from the most tiny ability to just detect the gravitational field. It's not saying, oh, I am feeling the gravitational field and it's going to attract me and I would like to go there. There is no choice in that level. There is no self-awareness on that level. There is no sense of being on that level. It's just the most basic, meager level of experience. Experience the field like the tree experiences the sun, but it doesn't think about it, doesn't know what the sun is. No, we don't know. As humans, we <laughs> later on had to discover what the sun is. And then from experience to thought, also you have a different thing. So you have the experience, then you have to think about it, and then you have to understand it, understand its laws. There is how you go from lower, lower consciousness to higher, 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 higher consciousness. But it's all a field of experience, a field of consciousness. What would be the highest consciousness if you start to think about it? You know, humans have quite a high level of ability to be conscious. And I guess that's why many traditions have said like humans are made in the image of God as in the Bible or the kingdom of heaven is within you. I mean, these are high sayings. And in Veda, for example, thou art the Veda, thou art that. And in the Quran, for example, it says that when God created um, humans, the angels came and bowed down because they have that ability to have higher states of consciousness. When Imam Ali says, consider yourself to be an atom in which the whole universe folded itself. You no, know, all these wise people, they have indicated 
directions of the importance of humans. And my research with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi about the ancient structure of knowledge and Veda has shown that our structure is really like the structure of natural law. This is another topic because I compared the human structure to the structure of the ancient books of the Veda and their functioning and found this intimate connection between our structure and its ability to transcend, its ability to experience pure consciousness, which is the field, that the field, so to experience actually the unified field, which is our true self, our ultimate true self. As you so elegantly expressed it, you know, that you said the Lego and all of that, that there is a substance, there is a something that then appears as many things. That thing is consciousness. That stuff is pure being, pure consciousness. And that is who we are. That's so beautiful. I want to close with a very direct question, Tony. So if this consciousness is what creates the physical world, why are we so concerned about the physical world? I love the word transcend. If you were to give our listeners one advice about how to transcend the chaos, the noise, the pace, the madness of the physical world we perceive that we live in, how would we do that? Practice transcendental meditation. <laughs> it might sound... <laughs> <laughs> yes, you see, to a hammer, everything is a nail, but that's a very good nail. I actually agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> you asked me a question that has <laughs> such a proven, proven answer because it has been tried. It's not my opinion. It has been subject to so many scientific studies. It has shown people's behavior improve, people's longevity, people's ability to get over heart disease and problems and even social effects. This is another very powerful part mm. of transcending. When people transcend together, they go to the unified field and they activate something that is beyond locality. Because we said, and the quantum field values and the unified field is non-local. It's all permeating. And if you can act from that level, you can change things in the environment. And these are being also studied in terms of conflict resolution and crime in society. So transcend is on the deepest level. You can also say slow more. <laughs> slow down. You can say slow down, take a distance, take your time, step back a little bit. Don't be a football of situation and circumstances. Take the time to look at things. That is a small transcendence. But if you want to transcend to being, transcend to find yourself, transcend to the unified field, there is a technology. It comes to us from thousands of years. It's the supreme level of yoga, which is unification. It creates that unity, which allows us to really go beyond the smallness of the outer values. We can be different and as different as you want on the outside. If we know in the bottom of it, at the end of the story, we are all the same, one unified field, then you don't have to fear anything or anybody because everything is yourself and you are that infinite reality. Oh Discovering that is freeing, is unifying, is strengthening, even in terms of specificities and outer expressions. 
I could not ask for a better ending for this conversation. I know we spoke about lots of complex things and normally when we when we have a lot of content for you to reflect on, I'd rather give you more time to go back and listen to this episode one more time rather than prolong it and maybe, I mean, Tony and I can come again and talk about more when you tell us to, but go back and listen to this episode again. The idea is that your mind is always going to want more. But rather than give it more from the outside, take the dog deep inside, transcend and go deep inside to the depths of the ocean and you will find the bone right there. And I think at the very depths of the ocean, you will realize what Tony ended the conversation with, which I think is fabulous, that we are all the same unified field. We are the atom in which the entire universe exists. And I think when you realize that suddenly there is nothing to compete for, nothing to fight against, and maybe uh, really nothing to grasp at, you know, nothing to rush and get. And maybe only then you will realize, as I always tell you, that regardless of how busy you are and how fast your life is today, there's always a tiny bit of time to slow down. Tony, I cannot thank you enough. This was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful conversation. I'm very grateful that you came and was my guest today. I think uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Thank you so much to you. It's really a delight again to be with you. I have a course coming up on actually this topic. It will be in December. And I am now actually in London looking forward maybe to meet you. I'm recording my book, One Unbounded Ocean oh, of Consciousness. Oh, are you reading it yourself? Yes, I'm reading it what myself. What an amazing experience. I love that. I'm not in London. I'm actually hoping to be in London soon. But if we do, then coffee is definitely overdue. Wonderful. Yeah. And I have not met in person ever. Can you believe that? But we will, I'm sure. For all of you listening, if you've liked this, please share it with others. Please explore Tony's work. We are going to have all the links in our episode notes on slow-mo. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much, all of you, for giving me the alibi to spend amazing time with such wonderful friends that are bringing so much knowledge and wisdom and so much calm and kindness to my life. It's all because of you listening. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.